Lovely to see you. Uh, uh, normally, there, there normally is enough seats for everyone, but normally that's not until the kids have gone out. So uh, if you uh, find yourself, you know, without a seat, just relax for a little while and they'll free up once the kids go out. Mm. Once a month, we pack up the instruments, not the piano, hard to pack up, but we pack up the other ones and uh, do something a little bit different and keep the kids in for communion. So that was our morning with the kids this morning. Uh, lovely to see you this morning. Um, if, uh, for some, if you weren't here last week, this is perhaps the first time that you've seen me in uh, a little while. So it's lovely for me to see you. And I hope it's lovely to see for you to see me as well. I know some of the babies weren't feeling that love for me this morning, but uh, uh, I've just had some time off, a little bit of emotional fatigue and some burnout and some anxiety, just on, for good measure, just to mix that all up together. But I, I'm doing good. We get in there, and uh, it's, uh, I won't recap all of the uh, update from last Sunday. You can watch last Sunday's message for that if you want. Uh, I did write a poem uh, in order just to reflect something of where I'm at at the moment. Uh, it was entitled Limping Pasta. I won't read it this morning. Uh, but for those that were here last Sunday, I'm sure they'll be able to fill you in. And many of them actually took the time to learn the poem off by heart, which I really, uh, I really appreciated. So again, if this is your first Sunday back, just talk to somebody from last Sunday and they'll be able to um, share that, that poem with you. It was a group exercise and that was encouraging to have everybody learn it off by heart. If there's anyone here last Sunday that didn't learn the poem Limping Pastor off by heart, um, I think it's fair for me to say you need to make a little bit more of an effort. <laughs> that, that would be great. So. All right. We're in a new series. Um, Jesus and his parables. Oh, I, was, I did want to say as well, I'm sure many of you can relate to how I've been feeling as well. It's something that all of us go through at different times. And uh, it's just an art sometimes to know when you should be carrying other people and when you need to be carried yourself. And uh, often the bigger trouble we get in is when we mix that up. And so uh, if you're needing to be carried, talk to somebody. And if you're feeling like you can carry, talk to somebody. And I know I've appreciated that in my world in the last little while as well. Okay, Jesus and the parables we're going to carry on this morning. Uh, we started last Sunday. I tried to kind of place the parables in the, in the wider or the larger arc of the story of, of Scripture and the biblical narrative. Um, we see the parables, at least the first ones that Jesus begins to share, as parables of the kingdom. There's, there's parables of grace, there's parables of judgment as well, we'll get to them. But the, the, the first parables are these parables of the kingdom of God that's unfolding in the here and now of today. That is continuing to unfold in the here and now of today. And Jesus shares these parables to kind of help people get their heads around it, but it's not quite as uh, simple as that. But God's Garden to City project is still unfolding. Uh, even if we can't always see it, take heart. The kingdom of God is within you and amongst you and is, is expanding and is growing and is taking root and will develop and will bear fruit and all these kinds of things. So take heart. Uh, not because it's a kingdom of bricks and mortar. Uh, it's not a kingdom that is uh, unfolding in line with the, the first century understanding of a kingdom or of an empire. Nor in the way that in a 21st century we might understand a kingdom or an empire. It's not, it's not a bricks and mortar empire like that. It's, it's different. So Jesus tells these parables to help folks understand how different this is. 
So there's a sense in with the parables that they're not necessarily about satisfying everyone with a detailed explanation of the kingdom, but rather in subverting and exposing how unsatisfactory the common perceptions or understandings of the kingdom are. The parables aren't so much about giving you a satisfactory explanation. Many of them simply expose how unsatisfactory previous explanations or assumptions are regarding to the kingdom of God. Jesus does this as well in the Sermon on the Mount. I mentioned it last week. Uh, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I say unto you, turn the other cheek, which doesn't exactly explain how it's meant to be. Uh, it does expose that the previous idea of eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth is kind of, that's a little bit unsatisfactory. I'm sure we can do better than that. Yeah, yeah, you can. Turn the other cheek. But what about when, you know, th there's still some commentary that's needed in 2,000 years worth of wrestling. But what does it mean to do that, to be faithful to that? Some of that happening with the uh, parables as well. Uh, Jesus is traveling around Judea and Galilee. He's preaching and teaching of the kingdom of God. There's signs, there's wonders, there's miracles. He, he's literally quoted from Isaiah that the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon him to proclaim good news, to set free the oppressed and the captive. Um, and so the crowds and the disciples and the people that are listening to Jesus talk, Roman officials, religious leaders, they're hearing something of a messianic claim, something of a claim to kingship and rulership and authority. Jesus has literally stood up in an inaugural message in Luke chapter 4. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me to declare good news to the oppressed and the captive and sight to the blind and, and all these kinds of things. Gotta to, got to appreciate how that is heard by those that, that are hearing Jesus talk about that for the first time. Um, there, there's saving, ruling, reordering, kingly claims happening in that kind of uh, commentary. Revolutionary claims, either. So the good news, gospel. Good news is a translation of gospel. Gospel is a translation of this Greek word euangelion. Euangelion means, good news means, gospel means, essentially, an announcement of the great deeds that the Caesar has done, that the king has done. Heralds would stand up, Euangelion, Euangelion, good news, good news, glad tidings for you. I've got good news, glad tidings, I've got gospel news for you, I've got Euangelion for you. And then the announcement would be, Caesar has conquered the Gauls. Caesar has brought peace on earth and goodwill to all. Uh, Caesar has wiped out the Germanic people and pushed the empire further. The boundaries have, the boundaries have gone out further. Euangelion, good news. Caesar is bringing peace. Uh, you're a Roman citizen. You get to live free, unoppressed. Good news. Euangelion from Caesar. So gospel is, in relation to Jesus, is very much a subversion of of political talk in the first century when jesus comes with euangelion with good news for those that are oppressed and captive it's like well hang on caesar is the one that the heralds give good news for those that are oppressed who what's happening so they're hearing they're hearing this political discourse they're hearing this messianic claim the king has come to set the oppressed free and the captives free and who does Israel see as the oppressed and the captives? They see themselves as the oppressed and the captive. They've, they've been overthrown by the Roman Empire. 
there's Pilate, Pontius Pilate's there, and, and Herod's a client king who's basically paid enough money to the, he's a Jewish person that's a paid enough money to the Roman Empire to be appointed king. He's not king in the line of David. He, he shouldn't be on the throne. So the Jewish people are hearing, hey, this Jesus guy, this Jesus, he's, the, he's got some euangelion. He's got some good news. He's, got, there's a, he's going to set the oppressed free and the captives. That's us. We better um, sharpen our swords. We better rally the troops. We better keep our eyes open. Something good is about to happen. The expectations are high, though I hope we can appreciate they are somewhat misdirected. Uh, the disciples, their story is recorded in Scripture. I don't think the disciples necessarily got it more wrong than anyone else. They just get, we just get to hear their story and hear how wrong they got it. Um, the disciples uh, in Mark 10, uh, James and John ask in Mark 10. In Matthew 20, the story says that James and John, mum asks Jesus, when you come into your power, when you come into your kingdom, James and John's mum to Jesus, hey, when you come into your power, when you come into your kingdom, could my sons, James and John, sit on your left hand and your right hand? Could they be places of authority? Could James maybe... Be, take the place of King Herod and, and, and John can take the place of Pilate and you can be like king over all. This is James and John's mum talking to Jesus. You know, Ian Foster's mum ringing up the NZRU. Can you please let my son be the next day? You know. It's a bit weird. Like you got the mum talking to Jesus. But that's how wrong they get it. They're asking when you come into power, when you're sitting on the throne in the, in the palace and there's the huge kind of... Uh, the spread out area in front of us. So we'll sit on the left and the right on the raised platform and we'll judge over people and make decisions when they come with their requests and their, their different things like that. So can, can we do that? Can we do that? Later on, Jesus is trying to explain, no, 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 no. My throne will be a, uh, my, my crown will be a crown of thorns. My throne, I'll be enthroned on a cross. The people on the left and the right will be thieves on the left and thieves on the right. That, that's how my, it's back to front and upside down. And Peter and others, I was like, no, 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 it's not going to be like that. We won't let that happen. We will, uh, we'll, we'll, you know, Peter has a sword, so Peter's like, well, we'll fight. We won't let this happen. Uh, he gets in a little bit of trouble. Uh, Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. So that, that's, a, um, that's a reasonably decent kind of pushback uh, that, that Peter gets. Others get it wrong as well, but certainly the disciples, their stories are there for us. James and John, mum, asking for power. Peter being referred to as Satan. You, you don't understand the will of God. The crowd's got it wrong. After he's preaching at one stage, they attempt to take him by force and make him king. And there's this miraculous thing that happens where somehow God, uh, Christ walks through the crowd and slips away as they're trying to take him by force and make him king. So a lot of expectations, but a lot of expectations in the wrong direction. He'll have none of this. His crown, is thrown, his crown as thorns is thrown across. It's in his death that he'll be lifted high. The parables seem to be Christ's antidote to these misunderstandings. Christ's antidote to these misunderstandings. Quotes from Isaiah at one stage in Matthew 13. If you've got your um, phone or your iPad or whatever and you're not on social media, you can go to the Bible app and go to Matthew 13. That would be, um, that'd be good. I know lots of you live tweet the sermons. It's like, okay. You don't think anyone, I don't think anyone does either. But hey. All right, Matthew 13. Um, I did follow some friends who live tweeted 
the Left Behind movie one time and, and critiquing it from a theological perspective. That was really interesting. That's a different sermon. All right, Matthew 13. Uh, Jesus says, this is why I speak to him, them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. So, so Jesus isn't talking about the parables that they don't understand. He's talking about, man, the, the crowds, the disciples. They're not, they're not understanding my ministry. They're not understanding what I'm about. They're not understanding how different this kingdom is. They're not understanding how different my rule and reign will be. Ever hearing, but never understanding. Ever seeing, but not perceiving. For the people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because they see, in your ears, because they hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it, and hear what you hear, but did not hear it. So all this stuff is happening, but people aren't seeing, people aren't perceiving, people aren't understanding. So he speaks in parables. The prophets were longing for this. The people don't realize it's here. He says to the disciples, blessed are you because you're getting your head around it. They're just slowly getting their head around it. They're not brilliant, but they do get there in the end. Calloused hearts, ears that don't hear, closed eyes. Calloused hearts to what? Closed eyes to what? Deaf ears to what? Leading up to Isaiah 6, we've... Uh, a number of good Old Testament rebukes. Uh, Israel's abandoned the rule and reign of God in their lives. There's no righteousness. Uh, there's a whole lot of empty sacrifices. They enjoy the songs on the Sunday, but they're not so keen to take up their cross, would be perhaps a 21st century parallel. Enjoy the songs on Sunday, and it's a nice to chat with your friends and have a cup of tea, but taking up your cross Monday through Friday, oh, give that a miss kind of thing you got a little bit of that happening with Israel. They're making all the sacrifices, but they're not looking after the downtrodden and the lonely and the poor and the discarded. Israel is to, Israel is to learn to do good, to seek justice, to rebuke the oppressor, to defend the fatherless, to plead for the widow, but they're not. They're caught up themselves in this empire-building project. That's what the prophet Isaiah is talking about in those early chapters of Isaiah. By the time we get to Jesus talking here in Matthew 13, he's noticing it's still the same. These Israel people, Israel, Israelite people, these Jewish people, they're still looking for a kingdom and an empire. My kingdom is not an empire. It's not a throne like they're imagined. It's something different. So, so he, he quotes from Isaiah. He refers to Isaiah. He sees those, those people around him as fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah. One of the headings in the New King James, in New King James 4, 1, verse 21 to 23, is the, the degenerate city. How the faithful city has become a harlot. It was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loves bribes and follows after rewards. They're not, they do not defend the fatherless, nor does the cause of the widow come before them. This is in Isaiah chapter 1. They're pursuing an empire-building project, and they're not looking after the people they should be looking after. Um, uh, Isaiah 2, 5 to 8, the heading is embracing the ways of other nations. Uh, Israel had this Abrahamic call to be a, an example, to be a light, to be a guide. They were to be blessed, to be a blessing. They were to do things differently as they followed the way of God. But here they're embracing the way of other nations. 
O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have forsaken your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with eastern ways. Uh, they are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they are pleased with the children of foreigners. Their land is also full of silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. The land is also full of horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is also full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their fingers have made. Israel's embracing the way of the nations around them. Chariots, gold, treasure, idols, worshipping the things that we've created and we've built and we've put together. Old Testament language, but 21st century implications. Our land full of idols, worshipping the things that we've created and we've put together, amassing treasures, all these kinds of things. Jesus sees it in the first century context as well. Other headings in those early chapters of Isaiah, oppression and luxury condemned. Impeding judgment on excesses. All the good news of the gospel, I love it. Oppression and luxury condemned. Impending judgment on excesses. Israel's blind to the alternative nature of the kingdom of God. It's going the way of the other nations, focused on empire-building tendencies. Nothing's changed by the time of Christ. Callous, deaf, blind to the upside-down, back-to-front, first will be last, last shall be first, co-suffering, sacrificial way of Jesus. The co-suffering, sacrificial way of Jesus, which is entirely non-rational non-plausible, offensive to the Greeks, a stumbling block to the Jews, or the other way around. Just doesn't, how can it be that, how can it be that this upside down way of being could be a way of living in the world that would be life-giving and healing and wholesome? And yet Jesus walks the totality of that. The ultimate first shall be last, laying down his life on the cross, the ultimate kind of indignity to be raised from last place to be Lord over all. There's this call to the disciples to walk that same pathway. It's unplausible and yet life and life. So it's not an earthly kingdom of power. It's like a farmer who went to sow seed. Ah, I like the kingdom to be like a massing of some good tanks and some, you know, spies and some strategy and a couple of grey men working on behalf because they're pretty awesome. Doesn't work like that. It's like a farmer who went to sow seed. You mean it's not like secret agents? No, it's like a farmer that went to sow seed. I don't, I don't know if that is going to be tough enough in this day and age. Matthew 13, verse 3 to 9. Jesus told them many things in parables, saying, Farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. And birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched. And they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced the crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So there's all this play on words with Isaiah for calloused hearts, deaf ears, blind eyes. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If you've got eyes, let them see. 
later on, Matthew 13, verse 18 to 23. Listen to what the parable means. When anyone hears the message of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one snatches away what, has, what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When what comes, trouble or persecution comes, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word. These are, these are Isaiah 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, Matthew, kingdom, empire ideas, luxury and wealth and all of these kinds of things, persecution, there's these flow over themes happening. The seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop, yielding 160 or 30 times what was sold. So countless books have been written on the totality of the parables. Countless books have been written on just this parable alone. So there's a lot, there's a lot going on, on to kind of unpack and get your head around. And I've been doing a little bit of that. And there's, there's, there's different ideas, not a clash of ideas, but a multiplicity of ideas that kind of birth out of this parable. We'll, we'll just focus on a, a couple of them. Obviously, the point of the story is not agriculture. <laughs> Even the disciples knew that. He's telling a story about seed and soil and birds and different things and a harvest, but it's not about seeds and soil and birds, and we know that. It's not, it's not about that. It's not about the obvious. Somehow the illustration is somehow pointing towards something to do with the kingdom of God and the nature of the kingdom of God and the way the kingdom of God works. I think the best interpretation is to recognize that God is the sower. God's the one that sows. Uh, that Jesus is the seed. Jesus is the message of the kingdom of God. Uh, there is the word of God. There's the words from God that Jesus speaks. Then there is the fact that Jesus is the word from God. With a capital T. Jesus is the message from God in regards to the kingdom. So when we talk about the Word of God, we are talking about the whole of the Bible. We are talking about the things God says through Christ. But when we're talking about the Word of God with capital T, capital W, capital G, we're talking about Jesus being the Word from God. Jesus is the lens through which we interpret all else that is written and understood and is known. The seed is the Word of God. The seed is the Word about God. But the seed is Christ who is the Word from God. So we should note that the word from God is not a sword swung. The word from God is not a sword swung. When, when um, the, the, the pictures in Revelation of when Christ returns, he comes, he's on a horse, and there's a, there's a, um, there's a sword coming from his mouth. Um, this is for free. I won't even charge you. Don't, don't interpret it literally, because um, it's weird to try and do that. Especially when you consider a man on a horse holding a sword in his teeth, like, like it, it, it runs out of steam pretty, pretty quickly. Christ is not coming back with a sword to slay the baddies. It's just, just not happening. The, the picture of Christ on the horse with the sword in the mouth is the, the sword is the word from God that cuts to the core. 
penetrate. It's not, there's no violence, there's no armies, it's not, a, it's not an empire building, Jesus is going to conquer things via violence, it's, it's the sword, it's the word, it's the truth, which is ultimately seen in Christ. The word from God is not a sword swung, it is a seed sowing. And Christ is literally the seed sown. He's buried in a tomb. Out of sight, discarded, stone rolled across. Jesus is buried like a seed is buried and put away, hidden. The kingdom of God is not so much one of brick or mortar. Something that's buried within, something that is within you and among you and known between one another. It's not an external thing, but something deposited within, cultivated within, stewarded within the inner world of our lives. You get enough kingdom of God type people all working together on something, they might build a church building, something like that. What they have not done is build the kingdom of God. What they've done is build a church building. And that's really important at times and is a part of this kingdom of God project, but it's an extension of the kingdom within, not, oh, there, we can see the kingdom of God now, because anything can happen in a building. There's flow over, but it's not a bricks and mortar thing. It's the life of God within us. The soil then is our lives, our hearts, our response. So God's the sower. Christ ultimately is the seed, both in that which he teaches that which he models and then his life literally given for us, dead and buried and raised to new life. We're, we're the soil. The question is, what's our response to that going to be? How are we going to allow the life of Christ to be deposited and held within us in the inner world of our lives? And what, in what way will we allow that to bear fruit and to develop something? I think that's the best word, develop something in our lives over time. Well, there's a concrete path. There's a way in which our hearts can be as a slab of concrete, really. The seed, the instruction, the message, the insight, the, the awareness of God, it falls on kind of concrete and we discard it. We don't pay attention to it. We overlook it. Don't even allow it to really take root. It's, it, the birds snatch it away, metaphorically. Cares of life, worries of life, other concerns, other agendas, desire to rule your own life, whatever it might be, sweeps those seeds away before they even have a chance to kind of take root and bear anything. It's a sense of being uninterested, unopen to the things of God. And uh, it's funny, I mean, we know people in our world that are uninterested in the things of God. It's, it's probably like knocking on the door and asking to have a cup of tea and talk to them about for an hour about the things of God probably going to elicit a negative response and they're not interested in that. So be it. There's times though when we who are supposedly about the things of God hear certain aspects to do with the things of God and if we're honest, ooh, we've got a bit of a rocky path there and I don't like that little bit. I'm going to just let that kind of... I'll be careful there. Rocky soil. Enthusiasm. But trouble, persecution, there's a sense of falling away. Uh, my son won't be watching online at home, but I remember one time he opened up the Christmas present and he was trying to be so brave, but there was a little tear in his eye. And me and Lisa realized we had really not got this right. And he's like, he's trying to be, I can't remember what it was. Was it Yahtzee? I don't know. 
There you go. You can probably all understand with the artsy then. Even I can understand in reflection. A little, little tear in his eye and he just says, oh, it's all right. It's just not what I was hoping for or expecting. I was like, oh dear, oh dear. I was like, are there any shops open? Like, you know, that was the first time we ever like, we'll go out on Boxing Day and do something. Just, we're just, because he's so polite. It just wasn't what I was hoping for or expecting. There's a sense often where we hear the word of God and this idea of the kingdom of God. And it takes root and there's some excitement and there's some joy. And then down the track a little bit, there's some talk of some crosses and some laying down your life. And Jesus says, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem and die. And Peter's like, I've got a sword and we won't let that happen. What are we saying? We're like, we're, we're really saying it's just, it's not what I was hoping for, really expecting. I've, there's a YouTube clip I saw one time like 15 years ago. And I spent, I've spent just about 15 years trying to find it and I can't find it anywhere. Um, but the, the preacher, it's a skit. Preacher says along the lines of like, yeah, you know, everyone bow their bow their heads and close their eyes and nobody looking around kind of thing. And I just wanting how many people kind of want to say yes to Jesus? And like no one puts their hand up. And it's like, come on, you want to say yes to Jesus. You have a think about what you want to do with your life, your dreams, your hopes, your goals, your aspirations. You you have a think about those things. The the great dreams you have for your life. To, to succeed in this and that and the other thing. So, you know, everyone's thinking about it. I think it's a youth event, to be honest. And then the preacher says, well, whatever you're imagining, God wants to do exceedingly, abundantly, above everything you could ask or hope or imagine. So how many people want to say yes to Jesus? And it's like every single hand in the building is like, I don't know if that's the whole take up your cross invitation to following Jesus that we should be giving the young people, to be honest. Because I can imagine some pretty good things. And if Jesus is wanting to do exceedingly abundantly above the pretty good things I can imagine, why would you not say yes? And what Jesus becomes is a, a value addition to our lives, some sort of formula by which we're going to um, build our own empire. Uh, but when you unpack it a little bit more, you discover Jesus has come to undo that in our lives, not feed that or foster that so there's a sense in which you can say yes, and then as you journey along a little bit, it's like, oh, it's not really what I was hoping or expecting or looking for. Uh, it's a little tougher than I was expecting. Falls away. Thorns and a uh, rocky saw. Thorns and thistles, sown, but the worries of life and the deceitfulness of riches choke it out. In other words, there's a different kind of kingdom growing alongside the kingdom of God. And we all are navigating that, especially as Western Christians often upwardly mobile professionals or whatever you might be. This is a common thing for, for Western Christians. It's a common thing for people in Tauranga. There's these two kingdoms being built simultaneously, the rule and reign of God in our lives and the rule and reign and power and control of ourselves in our lives. As we get older, as we accumulate resource or study or, or, or pay off a house or do different things, there's these two realities happening uh, the second is not bad it, it comes it, you know you go through Proverbs there's some wisdom in like you know buying a house and doing different things there's these, these two things that they, they have their place one is not inherently evil or wrong or shouldn't be pursued in some way shape or form but there comes moments in all our lives where we realize we've got two kingdoms We've got the kingdom of God that I'm looking to flourish and serve and develop in my life. And then we've got my own kingdom 
that I'm looking to build via my resource and my promotions and my education and investments and what, not bad, two good things. Until that moment when we realize they're two kingdoms, two different ways of being. And there's markers in the sand where we're called to live one way or not the other way. And that can be challenging. Those are, the, those are just those moments where the two kingdoms come head to head. And the question is, what rule and reign are you going to allow to take precedent in your life? I know when I talk these things through with my professional supervisor kind of thing, uh, sometimes we wax lyrical around it all, trying to unpack it. And then after a little while, I go, do you think maybe this is just another one of those times when you're called to take up your cross and follow Christ and pay the price? Yeah, I think it actually is. I think that is what it is. After having spent 45 minutes looking at it from all different angles. Oh, yeah. And we all have these moments in amongst the success of life, the heartaches of life, the, the, the dreams that are coming true, the ones that are, oh, hang on. I, gotta, I could go left or right here. What's God calling me to do in this moment? Take up my cross or follow or to let the worries of life and the deceitful riches of riches dominate. Those are real choices. And it's so easy to feed one kingdom and not the other. But, you know, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you can't serve two masters. Those two things live alongside one another, but inevitably there'll be moments in time where two different masters are calling for allegiance. Which one are you going to pay attention to? Thorns and thistles. Resonates with Isaiah. You know, those headings, oppression and luxury, impeding judgment on excesses. You know, Jesus is aware of all of this and unpacking all of this. Good soil. Hear and understand. Appreciate it. Allow it to take root in your life. Learn to be patient in life. I love what Mary said. She said she, will, she took those things and she treasured them in her heart. What is it that we're to do with the kingdom of God? The pragmatists among you are probably looking for like the 10 things you should do this week to better foster the kingdom of God. And we can do that in a way, in a way. But really, the call is to treasure those things in your heart, to allow the things of the kingdom to be that which resonates within, that you're putting your faith and your well, faith and trust is the same thing, really. Your, your, your faith and your trust into. A long obedience in the same same direction. Uh, there's a book, the, the Patient Ferment of the Early Church, which was about one of the, the values of the early church was patience. We just walk this slowly. Have any of you got kids that have planted seeds before? One of the challenges is after half an hour, they dig them up again and go, it's not really working. You know, after a day or two, they dig them up again. It's still not working. That's why if you're ever doing that with kids, it's beans and mustard seeds because like, oh yeah, it's, it's sprouted the next day. Phew. Gosh, we had to wait two days for that. We'd be digging that up. As adults, though, following the things of God, allowing the kingdom of God to ruminate and to develop and to percolate and to take root within. Sometimes we're like, well, I've been waiting this for 10 years. I'm going to dig this up and see what's happening. It doesn't appear that anything's happening. I'm going to change tack and do this. It's like, well, how do you know? If, what if that sort of seed takes 15 years to bear the fruit in your life that you were looking for it to I mean, what if it takes 10 years in one day? <laughs> you only had to wait one more day, but you, you've dug up, you've done a shortcut, you're looking to, don't, don't work like that, just treasure it in your heart, treasure it in your heart. The, I think the most recent illustration I've had of that is chatting with some parents uh, in regards to their kids. And you know, kid, parents have aspirations and hopes and ideas of what that will look like. And 
chatting with someone, it's like, it's not really what we were looking for <laughs> before expecting. And so we, you, you can't underestimate the deposit that is made. And kids go through like adults, well, we're just kids that are a little older. Like there's learning cycles and developmental cycles. There's a big difference between the brain of a 12-year-old, a 16-year-old, a 25-year-old, and a 35-year-old, especially the blokes. They, they, they take a while, they lag. And there's this sense in which, some of the things we've been worried about, we haven't seen for years. I think the investment that was made in those early days, we're starting to see some fruit of that. And it's been encouraging. It's been, it's been insightful. And it's been, I think, it's a good thing. It's like, yeah, these things take time. The nature of the kingdom of God is not one of power where you swing a sword and make it happen quickly. You plant a seed in the lives of your kids and your own life and the friends around you, and you trust God that over time it would produce fruit. Sometimes when we're yelling at kids or arguing with kids or demanding things, all we're really doing is digging up that seed and wondering why it's not doing what it should do. Produces a house. All right, that's enough. I've got a lot, but that'll do. Let's stand to our feet. There's some headlines at the moment in relation to the church that in New Zealand, in Australia, in America, around the place that uh, give us insight to moments in time where churches become empire-building projects. So each shot that, that is re readily available in the public domain. So let's lay that aside, put that to the side. Let's focus more on the reality that our lives can, be can become exercises in empire-building projects. That's a little bit more, or should be a little bit more uncomfortable. Sure, a church can go wrong and become an empire-building project. What if my life is an empire-building project? Who really is the king and the lord of my life? Especially in those moments of decision where there's two things happening, and it's like, ooh, what am I going to allow to rule and reign in this moment? Especially when some of the stuff of life is not bad stuff. It's good stuff. It's just who's going to be lord in that moment. I had a car that I don't have anymore, but I've got carpet on my house, so that's a blessing. Uh, it's a 1967 HR Holden Wagon, baby blue it was called. Well, we didn't have a garage and I'm not a car guy. It was an awesome car but I wasn't going to be able to maintain it. So we sold it and got carpet so that was awesome. But when I had the car I knew that the car could never become lord of my life. I had to be lord of the car and then we had little kids and like kids do things in cars that's weird and that's fine. Like you know, they wanted to know why, where the button was for the windows. That was their major question. But what, these possessions, there's not inherently anything wrong with them. But do they possess you or do you possess them? The business you're building, there's nothing wrong with that. But does that possess you or do you possess that? And when I say do you possess that, I'm meaning does the rule and reign of Christ in your life possess that? And that's often... Well, should be, I think, more confronting than headlines about churches that have gone left and right. It's like, what if my life has become an empire-building project? God, what are you wanting to do in this moment, in this situation? Especially when sometimes when we were like 20 and we had nothing, it was like, Lord, I give you my life, I give you everything, I lay it down, it's on the altar, take the lot, you know, 720 in the check account and 1420 in the savings account. It's like, it's all yours, Jesus! 
And then like, yeah, 50, it's like, well, some of it's yours, Jesus, but there's a little bit more now. And I don't know if I want to give you my heart, my life, and my soul, and this other thing. Like, can our 50-year-old self embrace the faith and trust and hope of our 20-year-old self? That youthful faith that just wanted to see God's kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All right, let's close. You theorists, you'll be happy because of your learning style as a theorist. There's some big ideas for you. Uh, the reflectors amongst you, maybe have a look at the parable this afternoon. Reflect on pressure or hard times in your life. Worry or the allure of money. Who has ruled and reigned in that moment for you? Pragmatists, you need to apply something. What could you do this week to maybe detangle yourself from some of the constraints or some of the, the, the vines of worry and riches that tangle up and maybe are causing you to, you, you to be calloused of heart or to be, have one eye open rather than two eye open, one ear block rather than both ears listening for the rule and reign of God. The activists, you'll be keen to move forward and progress, so read a different parable and reflect on it. <laughs> As you go this morning, Know that in Christ you are part of the great mystery that is the kingdom of God breaking out on earth as it is in heaven. A kingdom of love and justice and peace within you and among you. As you go this morning, be confident that despite the hiddenness, the mystery, the peculiarity of the kingdom, it is the kingdom of the king who has conquered death and who is enthroned above all the kingdom of a king whose governance will be without end and where every tear will be wiped away, where there will be no more crying or pain or death and where that garden has finally become the city that is the dwelling place of God. As you go this morning, go in the love, the grace, the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. In all things, be patient and trust, for the kingdom is not of this world. Do not worry, do not seek to control Instead, in all things, look to Jesus. Amen.